brother understood that how he grew up. I mean, he's like saying everywhere I went, hey, he stalked me for a while. I mean, he had guns, guns out, point waiting for me to walk past certain places. He see me in restaurants. He see me my my, uh, my lady and my daughter. You know, at certain places he mentioned that we were there, and, and for sure I was there. So I know he was there. You know, so um, it's just this point like now, like we say, we are, we we both win in this situation because if you listen to me, and then somebody probably eventually would have killed you. I mean, or you went to jail for the rest of your life, and somebody in jail probably did something to you. And uh, he's like, everywhere he went, you know, people love me. He's like, that's what he starts seeing everywhere he went, that somebody loved. Like, people love you, helping kids, you know, you, you teaching children how to make the right choices and stuff like that. Don't fall into mistakes. He says, so I was seeing your work, is that I just didn't care. I mean, because I, I knew that you killed my brother, that's all I wanted to do. From cave drawings to family histories to stories around the fire, humans crave order among chaos, connection amid isolation. So we tell stories. Our mission at the Storytellers Network is to bring the art of story to the masses. Whether you're in marketing, you're an entrepreneur, or you're developing your own personal brand, telling your story effectively can make the difference between celebrating milestones and collecting unemployment. The Storytellers Network strives to help storytellers tell their stories so you can learn from the best. Now, your host, the inbound evangelist himself, Dan Moyle. And welcome to the Storytellers Network podcast, season five, episode one. I'm so excited. I am your host, Dan Moyle, and I believe in the power of story. From personal connections to business, storytelling is what separates us from all other life on earth. It, it connects us. And we're about to dive into yet another great story with a fantastic storyteller. Now, before we do, a quick reminder that our website has great resources available, past episodes, and contact information for me. Visit thestorytellersnetwork.com for all that. And if you're new, simply testing the waters, uh, just go ahead and text STORYTELLERS to 31996 to subscribe. Now, today's guest is a, a mentor an activist, a poet, an author, an inspirational speaker who has appeared on the TEDx stage and a man who happens to be convicted of murder. Will Latif Little grew up in a single-family parent home with his four sisters in Philadelphia. Uh, Without his father or any kind of father figure out there at all, uh, Will began to venture out picking up bad habits and negative ideas on the street. Becoming a product of his own environment, according to his own story, Will dropped out of high school in the 10th grade, got involved in the Philadelphia drug trade and other illegal activities, which ultimately landed Will in prison for 10 to 20 years on a murder conviction at the age of 19 and a brand new father. Now, while in prison, Will decided to turn his life around by first getting his diploma by way of GED. Uh, He became a voracious reader. And what began as a way to pass the time with books actually helped him become a man and an incredible storyteller. So without further ado, Let's get to Will's story. Uh, so yeah, thanks, Will, for joining me for the Storytellers Network. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, my friend. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, I, I love following your story uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, but one of them is because you're just such a great storyteller. Uh, do you consider yourself a storyteller? Well, you can say that. I can say that. I mean, based on most of my poems are, are stories, you know, um, that I actually experienced or someone else experienced. And I just articulated it in a poetic style. But, you know, you can say that I'm a storyteller through, through poetry. Yeah, absolutely. And 
I mean, you, you told the story from a stage too. So do you do that in front of crowds now as well as give your story, but also talk about poetry and stuff? Well, yeah, I, I, I tell my story of my transformation, you know, in my life and the things I've came across and the, uh, how I persevered through some trying times and hard times to just inspire other people that, you know, it's possible to change and grow, you know, and evolve. Yeah. And, and do you find people really connect with that story of your struggles? Yes, they do. Yeah. So I kind of covered it a little bit in the intro, um, but let's talk a little bit about your story. So you grew up uh, basically on the streets of Philadelphia, right? I mean, you spent a lot of time in the streets and with a lot of, you know, bad influences, right? How, what, what kind of go back to that a little bit for me and tell me a little bit about your story, where all that kind of starts for you, Will. So it started um, when my mom moved to Philadelphia. <coughs> Excuse me. My mother moved to Philadelphia from North Carolina. I was about the age of probably six months to a year. And uh, my father said, Maria, because of you know, domestic issues. And, and me being the only boy, I was the, the fourth youngest child. I had three sisters older than me. Then we got to Philly, my mom you know, settled down. Um, with a, a boyfriend and had another child, so was another, had another sister who were younger than me. And uh, just growing up without my father, just uh, just trying to wonder like where I fit in in life. You know, being around a bunch of females a lot, you know, that there's something different about you than them. And <clears throat> a lot of times I just had to absorb, observe and just watch um, the things I've done or did because when you grow up in the environment, uh, you kind of pick up kind of behaviors and stuff like that, learn behaviors. And I knew I was different from my sisters because they were female and I was male, but there was no male for me to identify with, too. And um, just growing up, just trying to learn myself and just trying to figure things out on my own, uh, basically became my own problem solver. And uh, just by thinking a lot and just uh, watching and thinking, because I was a real quiet kid, I was an introvert. So um, I was real quiet, I was there, never really talked. My mother really couldn't never find me in the house if I was you know, by myself. You know, so that's how quiet I was. She always made that to everybody when she tells that story, saying that my son was so quiet you couldn't even hear him in the house. <laughs> you know, so <clears throat> I was that much quiet. Still had that trick today. Um, I'm gonna talk when necessary. But um, just growing up and the scene, like my mom going through her, and her demons too as well, because she lost her mother at the age of 11. They was both in a car accident from past, and my mother grew up real quick. So at the age of 15 years old, she got married to my father. Uh, they had four children, uh, back to back to back. And um, just her just dealing with that loss, dealing with that pain, and me watching it as a kid growing up, seeing her go through all those changes, using drugs, not really drugs, but alcohol as a you know, substance to cope with the pain, like most people do today. And um, <clears throat> just seeing both of them, those particular things just made me worry more about uh, myself, my sister, you know what I mean, and the fact that where's my father at, why he didn't call, why he didn't reach the you know, um, so I kind of knew I was like on my own uh, at that time, and my mom was too busy working uh, odd jobs trying to like, take care of five children now, um, and just growing up in the city is totally different than what my mom is used to, because she's a young girl from Virginia and North Carolina. And just being in a big city and in the inner city, you know, trying to look out for my sisters more so than me, she said, when she was younger. And she always thought I was okay because I never complained about anything. And um, she didn't really know my worries and trials. And I didn't think she could relate to my 
trials and troubles. I mean, as a boy, I mean, so the things I went to school and got in fights, didn't tell her, you know, walking down the street, uh, I got into arguments with somebody or got jumped by somebody. I, I didn't tell her about that. What's the purpose? You know, she can't help me. You know, female. So a lot of times I, I mustered a lot of um, issues on my own, and um, which was good for me at my young age. So um, mother got into fights with like a boyfriend, stuff like that, and I was there a couple of times. And a kid, I, I, I didn't think I could do anything about it. But as I grew older, you know, uh, my mother, she was a rough, she was a rough, she was a rough neck. So, you know, she grew up hard and, and she didn't take no stuff. You know, she's a female, no guys take advantage of females too. So her job was really trying to protect herself and protect my little sister um, from being abused by anybody in that nature. And uh, just me growing up, I figured that, you know, one day I got to become a man, one day I got to be fearless, one day I got to protect them, you know, because I'm the man in the house, even at the age of nine, 10 years old. You know, I've seen a, a house got robbed before, and my mom couldn't do nothing with me but crying. I got upset. So all these things are taking place and just happens in my family. It's like, it put pressure on me to, you know, protect them. You know what I mean? And I really dislike people who took advantage of people, you know, or bully people. <laughs> just by seeing that growing up. And uh, at the age of 13, my mom got into a fight with her boyfriend at the time. And uh, I was just coming back home because I was with my grandmother and mother back and forth. That's why I moved around so much. My grandma didn't really want me growing up. My, not my real grandmother, because my real grandmother died in a car accident. My mom was there. But my mother had an older sister who was like almost 15 years older than her. You know, oh. So she looked at her as like grandmother, basically. She took my mom and helped us and everything else. So um, I would move back and forth with her because she wanted me to be raised around a bunch of females, too, as well. So I moved back with my mom. My mom got in a fight with her boyfriend at the time. I was probably like 13 years old, a little tall, like probably 5'10". I jumped in a fight, you know, and he's like, what you want to think of man? You think of man? Yeah, I'm a man. I mean, I was angry, more angry, uh, expressing myself at the time. And um, he's like, all right, come on outside if you think of man. So I said, all right, I'm going outside. Put my shoes on. My mom said, don't go out there. I don't want to hurt you. I said, man, I'm going outside. I ain't going to be putting his hands on you no more. I mean, I can't call my dad. I can't call my uncles. I mean, a thousand miles away. So I, I felt as though I had to step up. And uh, when I went outside, he grabbed me by my chest, threw me against the wall, pulled out a gun, uh, 38 Dillinger he always carried, and pointed it at my face, like this close to my face. And um, I just looked at him and stared at the gun, stared at him, got real angry, got upset. I kind of blacked out. He was talking, saying some stuff like, you know, don't jump into a fight with me and your mom again. But I didn't really hear the rest he said because I, I blacked out at the time. I was so angry. I became fearless that day, you know, and I used to be afraid of the dark, I used to be afraid of the night sometimes, but at, at that moment, it, it kind of dehumanized me, you know. Uh, I didn't fear nothing at the time. I didn't fear dying, I didn't fear the streets, I didn't fear nothing. So uh, my mom asked me, was I okay? And I said, yeah, I'm okay, you know. But I wasn't, you know, I couldn't tell her that I wasn't because I think, I mean, she would understand, you know, my pain. So, um, Mixed with that, see my mom struggle from job to job and everything else, trying to take care of us. I got caught up, I mean, it's high school, middle school, and then high school, and the drug trade, and my friends, they had family members who sold drugs, and I wanted to make my, I wanted to make ends meet for myself, and I don't allow my mom to worry about me. So I started, you know, venturing out on the streets and seeing everything, and being exposed to a lot of things. I was everywhere. I mean, my mom didn't really know half the places I was at, uh, half the dangers I was in, because she's so busy working. So I uh, played a lot of dangerous games, did a lot of dangerous things that could have risked my life. And um, 
when I got into the drug game, it just got that much worse because, I mean, it was in the 80s when crack epidemic really hit hard and uh, there was a lot of people out there who were just preying on each other, like robberies and stealing and sticking up and, and uh, murder and shooting and drug addictions and stuff like that. And I was part of that environment. I was part of that culture, you know. And eventually, uh, I got arrested for drugs. That's when my mom found out I was selling drugs. And I got my stuff out. And then a month later, I was in jail for murder. You know, and um, then it really hit the fan for me. You know, mom was in denial about me even committing a crime. It was a shootout, so that's why she was much in denial. There was a group shooting at us, and we were shooting back. And um, she's like, you don't know if you, you did that or not. You know what I mean? It's, it's the same people were shooting. Everybody was shooting. You don't know who could shot. So I know I, I did it. I mean, um, so <clears throat> I accepted my responsibility and the act that I did uh, immediately. You know, um, then feeling remorse at the time because my mind was kind of born. I just justified my reasons for doing what I did. And um, I did, she had to come to grips with that herself. Like her son that she raised, you know, actually committed took for my life. It was kind of hard for her to deal with it. My father was cursing her out, you know, blaming her for my actions. And I was like, don't take responsibility for my actions. I'm, I'm, I'm taking responsibility for my own actions. I did it myself. And it had nothing to do with you. I mean, but um, eventually, uh, nine months later, after I was arrested and charged with uh, everything, like murder, took the murder on a witness, aggravated assault, conspiracy, uh, weapons offense. They were trying to give me a death penalty at first. And um, then some of the charges got dropped at preliminary hearing. And then uh, I was just faced with murder and aggravated assault with a conspiracy because I had um, three cool defendants on a case with me. And um, my son was born like nine months later when I was in jail. And at that time uh, he was born, it kind of woke me up. My epiphany came from that experience because I didn't care about my life, but it was now another child being born in the same situation. I mean, faced with the same dilemma, not having a father in his life, because I didn't know if I was gonna be in jail for the rest of my life, or I was gonna come home, beat the case, or just get some time. So it made me think, to myself, thinking about you know his life more so than mine. But I understood that before I could do anything for him, I had to do something for me, you know. And uh, the moment came a moment of clarity when I started thinking that you know I gotta, I gotta. Uh, change my life. I gotta change it. And I know there is no one in here gonna help me. There's no program in this prison to help me change and transform my life. So I knew I had to do it on my own and I had to be committed to that change. You know, so he became my why. My son became my why and the fact that I didn't want to be an old man walking around sweeping up um floors for the rest of my life. If I was able to get the opportunity to come home again, then I was gonna change. And I wasn't gonna wait for me to get home. I wasn't gonna wait for that to happen for me to start changing. I was gonna have to do it right then and there. I knew that. So at that moment, I just started just looking back on my life and seeing, reflecting on my life and seeing where did I, where did that start at? Where did that attitude come from? Where did that fearlessness come from? And I started reflecting back on the things that took place in my life, and I just I realized it. I discovered it, you know. And I started the healing process, healing myself. Like I gotta forgive that person who did that to me or hurt my family and my mom. And then I got to forgive myself for the acts that I've done to other people and hurt other people. And then I started the, the education process. Now I got I to learn more about me and who I am, the person, you know, and 
what are the possibilities of me changing my life and actually coming home one day and being a father to my son, you know, who definitely needs my guidance and direction and my experience, you know. So then that's when I turned the state penitentiary into my Penn State. And now, you know, gosh, I mean, that's a, that's a, a heavy story and it's, and it's one that's, I'm sure not uncommon. I mean, there are a lot of men in prison uh, because of where they were and, and, and this kind of thing, you know, for me, I, I don't have that struggle. Do you find that telling your story connects people like us who are so different and, and can bring me to that, to that place to understand why we're so different? Or do you find that story like people just kind of nod and then walk away? I mean, how, how, how connected do you find people get to you through that story? Well, every audience I speak to, I don't care if it's young, young kids in middle school or high school or college or guys in prison or um, community individuals, organizations, programs, businesses, or even rich people, wealthy. I, I speak in a group of um, abundance and one life to live is a majority of wealthy people. And I speak there and I tell my story because everyone has a story. And then my story is more so of a story of power forgiveness, a story of redemption, a story of peace, a story of um, perseverance, you know, and transformation, extreme transformation. You know, and these are the things that we try to look for in ourselves to find that that gift or that strength in ourselves when we're going through different dilemmas in life because we all face with trials and tribulations and because we have different experiences doesn't mean that we don't still have the same emotions attached to those experiences or the same feelings or the same outcomes or, or the same stress or the same depression you know or the same guilt i mean so these are emotions that we all feel you know what i'm saying based on different circumstances and environments and experiences but we are all part of the human family so we all have that same um emotion attached to our experience that people relate to the emotion of it you know the experience of what you've been through so i think that's why a lot of people can really connect to the story and um, it resonates with them very well because they can correlate that story to the experience in their own life and that's how people connect. I mean, if I can talk to you and you can look at my story and reflect on something in your life that it connects with, then that's how you build that connection. Um, and you know, okay, the story of perseverance. I, I, I went through a hardship. I lost all my money and my wealth. I lost my house. I lost my wife. And you know, I want to find a way to get that back. I mean, how can I get through that? You know, so that's the that's story of perseverance, um, uh, testing yourself and your will. And everything else, so uh, I think people connect with it very well on on different levels. Well, and I think you know, for me, the connection as you were telling that too was having a child. I mean, when my when my daughter, my first my first child was born, yeah, I mean, gosh, my life changed. I mean, it it wasn't that drastic as your story, but I can see my life change. And now I have two kids, and my my life is them, and and my wife, and and so yeah, I mean, we connect on that level. So. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty incredible. How how did you decide to sh- to speak and become? I mean, a, a motivational speaker. What 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 drove that for you? Um, finding purpose. You know, when you find your purpose in life, 
doesn't matter what, it's just gonna it's gonna push you in the right direction. Right? And like I said, I was an introvert as a kid. So my, even right now my mother is surprised that I speak in front of you know hundreds of thousands of people. You know, like who is this person right here? This is my son. You know, so um, it's just for me it's like I seen the calling. You know, I seen the need. You know, and it's, it's like growing up being in prison you around all these young brothers and sisters, not sisters, but young brothers and men and the same with the sisters experience they have, making bad choices based on emotions, based on uh, uh, the void that's not filled in their life. And they try to fill it with other things, with substance or, or anger or anything they're trying to fill it with. You know, the ultimate price is either, you know, prison or death. And um, I seen that need right there. I seen many people who were just, just like me and had the same experiences as I had, the need guidance and need direction. And I understood one thing that is overall just looking at the whole community, the whole country, period, um, the, the way we're, we're going, like the drug addictions, um, the violence, the suicide attempts, the hopelessness, depression, just looking at all that in a nutshell, for me it was like understanding that people just don't know how to live. Right? We're not taught the rules of life. There's rules to everything. And I understood that. I mean, when I was in the, walking in the halls in the, in the prison cells, there are rules. You have to lock up a certain time, you have to get out a certain time, you have to clean up a certain time, you got to eat a certain time. There's rules to everything. Same thing with nature. You know, there's rules to, I mean, how you plant seeds and how they grow and how you never them and how the universe works and how the sun and the moon that rotates around the earth and everything else. There's a rule. So, same thing with life, even with games and sports. You know, there are rules. You can't bring a football to a basketball court. <laughs> Good game. Yep. So, <clears throat> for me, it's just now, I want to reach my fullest potential. Like, what, what am I here for? What is my purpose in life? And these are things I thought about as a kid, eight, nine years old. You know, what is my purpose in life? Why do people live? Why do they die? I mean, these are, these are unanswered questions I always had myself as a child. Like, when I sat back in my room at the time, my mother can find me, I would sit back and just think, ponder, reflect. You know, use the God-given gift that He's given all of us. That's the ability to reason, rationale, think, imagine. You know, so um, it was a calling. Definitely, I recognized the calling. You know, and when I started teaching to other young men in the prison, you know, I was like, wow, I have a voice. You know, people listen to me. They connect with me. And I think the first time I was telling the story today, actually, I was doing a training um, with a group of. Um, uh, it's a program here called Philadelphia Anti-Drug and Anti-Network Violence. So I do I do trainings with different companies to teach them about emotional intelligence. So I was doing a training today and somebody asked me the same question when you start speaking. And I say that I really found my voice when I was in prison up by Pittsburgh, a place called Greensburg Prison. I was about five years in already on my time. And uh, there was a group of college students that came in to the prison. There was a view in the prison um, walking around and checking it out um, and seeing how we live, basically. And they came for count, it was count time, so they came and stabbed down the hall. They actually sit in there and I said, yeah, we, we, had done, we had finished cleaning up. So I said, they can sit there, no problem. So they were sitting around, they were so curious. It was one to ask me questions. It's like, can we ask you a question? I was like, no problem. Then what's your question? And she said, well, we walked around, like all of us walked around the prison today and we walked in the yard and we see I have phones in the yard, I got basketball courts. Uh, we walked in the gym. Yeah, the gym is better than the gym in our community. You know, I have cable, HBO, and watch uh, video channels and everything else. I got checkers and chess. I got baseball, basketball games. 
she said this. How was this? So I was thinking about what she said, and um, just visualizing everything she was mentioning about us, you know, the weights and the free weights in the gym, the best, the best of the workout equipment. And I said to her, I said, "This is not for us." And she was, it was all like shock, like, "What do you mean? It's not for y'all?" I said, "Say for example." If you went on a trip, on a vacation to Bahamas, and you stayed at a hotel, and the service was really great, um, the room was beautiful, the, the workout in the beach and the, the view on the site, everything was nice. People were really good in it to you. You come back to Bahamas, were you going to stay at the hotel, or you'll try to stay somewhere else? So I'll probably go back to the hotel. Exactly. So if you're in a place like this, I mean, and you have all the things, all the luxuries of life that you need, besides a female, but you have all the luxuries like you need. You have no responsibilities as far as like working, uh, having a job. Um, you wouldn't mind coming back to this place. So that's why the doors revolve the way they do. Right? So it's part of their system. It's not part of our system. It's part of their system. And once we realize that, it's a trap door, basically. Because if you're comfortable in a position, then of course you wouldn't mind coming back to jail. You know, I go back to jail. It was hard. It was no TV. There was no phones. No way to connect. You got to write letters all the time. You got to. All you can do is read books. Then people would be probably get educated. They probably reform themselves. I mean, they probably come out and be productive citizens. But since it's only a warehouse now, before it used to be a penitentiary, where a place where you feel penitent, at. and then you feel sorry for your crimes, and, and you get yourself together and get your act right, so you can come out and be a, a asset. You can be a um. um you can probably be a liability, but um, uh, contributing member to society, kind of thing. Yeah, contribute to society. Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, yeah, um, me saying it, just being in there, you know, just people coming in and out, in and out of jail. I mean, it's the fact that they have no fear of going to jail. In fact, there's a place for them. Some people come in for uh, six weeks through the wintertime, you know. So um, that's why I so said that's why you see all this stuff here, basically green attraction, because now it's a market for uh, the business now. You know, person's a business; it's not really a place for uh, redeeming yourself or transforming your life. Nothing for that. So um, that's why I really found my voice uh, that I was able to speak to intellectuals like that. Because I'm a high school dropout; I dropped out in tenth grade. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, me like, okay, yeah, I can have a conversation with some that you know we we need to be intelligent. I mean, it's in college. I mean, degrees and bachelor's degrees and PhDs. You know, so um, after that, uh, I started um, you know just doing more research on myself and studying more and um, and um, growing and in life in general. Just trying to find out, figure out how do you transform lives, I mean, how you continue to transform your own life and evolve and grow. Then this work I want to do when I got home. I mean, I wanted to come home to my community where I caused a lot of trouble at, you know, a lot of negativity, put out a lot of negative energy in the universe. I, mean, I want to come back and just try to uh, balance that out, you know. So the first thing I want to do is go back to the schools and then maybe go into the prisons in the neighborhood, speak in the community. And um, I seen there was a need for it. So that's why I just you know, went full-fledged with, all right, like I get a job when I get out. I don't know how that's going to turn out because I'm a felon, I'm convicted of murder. And I know uh, from some of the excuses that when guys come back that they're not hiring guys for felonies. 
Okay, so I really had to figure out what I was going to do in order to make money and take care of my son. You know, and that mm-hmm. was a challenging time, real hard, challenging, trying time for me at that time. At that moment, once I was released, you know, I was happy I was released, and showing, and I was grateful that I was released. But now it's time to really put your mouth, um, your money where the mouth is. Your mouth is. Yeah. And how long ago was that? How long have you been doing this now? Uh, twenty-one years. I've been on. Okay, and so. Can you look back now over those 21 years and say, okay, I'm, I'm, you've made your own way. You don't have to worry about somebody hiring a felon. You, you can actually do this professionally, right? Yeah, that's incredible. I, what I like about the story, Will, is that I, I feel like there's hope in the struggle. I mean, you know, it's, it's terrible that you, that you went through it and that people still go through it, but there's hope in it. Right. If you know, and, and that's, man, I, I love that. How you, how you weave that in there. Um, and, and something I want to ask about too, I saw the video where you went back and reconnected with the man who died, his, his family, right? Yeah. That man, is that, so how does that become part of your story? Telling his story and a story of healing. How did, how did that come about? Well, that's a real powerful story um, right there. And, um, the power of forgiveness there. I'll tell you this, what happened. You know, this, this brother, he was, you know, for years, you know, um, plotting revenge, to take, plotting revenge to take for his brother to take my life. And um, just so happy he was, he'd get locked up. And I, get, I was locked up first, and he got locked up. But since he was in jail, I get out. He's already out, but then he wanted to get locked up again. And then, uh, he could do some time, I think, for assault or something like that. And then he comes back home again. And he's still on the mission of stalking and stuff like that. But during the time he was in prison, you know, he was telling people about, you know, getting me when he got home. And, like, I know a lot of people in jails. I, I travel through the jails and speak in the jails. The fact that I lived there for 10 years, uh, a lot of people would say, you know, just go talk to Bullo. He's a real good dude. I mean, I've grown in now. So just talk to him and try to work that thing out. And, um, uh, Still, it was, it was bothering him so much, and he was on heavy medication and everything else. So, um, with that, he began to uh, think, you know, about it, that forgiveness, but at the same time, he's like, you know, it's, it's a real big thing. You're a street guy. I mean, we're both street guys growing up in the streets. You know that, I mean, a brother is somebody you never forget, I mean, that you grew up with and close to. And the fact that revenging your brother's death is a, is really major. I mean, you might have a friend to kill, and you want to avenge that too. But somebody take your brother's life is something you you have to do, basically. As you want, you have to do it. So I, I mean, when he came in the barbershop three years ago, um, he began. He walked in. I didn't know who he was at the time. So when he walked in, I thought he was a customer. And um, when he came. And said, you know, I want to talk to you. And I was like, all right, just give me a second. I thought he was like a customer or a father of a, of a kid or something like that that I cut. He said, no, I want to talk to you. And that's why he got my attention. I turned around, I looked at him. I was like, what's going on? He's like, no, I forgive you. So as soon as he said that, I knew who he was. As soon as he said that, I looked him in his eyes and, and see if he was sincere. I'm a good reader of people, you know. And I seen him sincere, he was looking at me, my eyes. And he came strapped, he came with his gun, he didn't know how to respond. Nobody knew how to take me. 
Uh, they never did, you know, because I'm not a good reader. You can't read me. But, you know. but um, just by the body of work that I've done in the community, and like he, the first person, came, his aunt was the first person who gave me uh, uh, for taking my nephew's life. And um, but he the only one that wouldn't do that because he was the man of the family. He's like a guy. I mean, he's everybody looked up to him. He's the toughest guy in the family, so they thought that he definitely didn't want to do it. But just for him to even walk in there and say that to me, and I thank them, you know, I, I thank you. I mean, for your courage and your strength, you know. And uh, we can go in the back. We can talk more about this. So we went in the back. We talked more about us growing up, how we grew up, fatherless. Both of us, you know, his brother were fatherless. You know, uh, his father was actually uh, a hitman for the black mafia. You know, so that goes along with his genes. That's what we looked up to, even though his father went around. And that's what we tried to emulate and be like. You know, that's why he was the person he was on the street. Me, I grew up single parent without a father. I don't want to protect myself and my family. So it just came to a point that all this negative energy and toxic, you know, just came to a point in teenagers clash. And, and um, unfortunately, he lost his life in that, in that battle. But <clears throat> his brother understood that, how he grew up. I mean, he's like saying, everywhere I went, hey, he stopped me for a while. I mean, he had guns guns out, point, waiting for me to walk past certain places. He see me in restaurants. He see me, my, my, uh, my lady and my daughter, you know, at certain places he mentioned that we were there. And, and for sure, I was there. So I know he was there, you know. So um, it's just this point, like now, like we say, we are, we, we both win in this situation because if you listen to me, and then somebody probably eventually would have killed you, and then or you went to jail for the rest of your life, and somebody in jail probably did something to you. And uh, he's like, everywhere he went, you know, people love me. So that's what he starts seeing everywhere he went that somebody loved, like people love you, helping kids, you know, you, you teaching children how to make the right choices and stuff like that. Don't fall into mistakes. He said, so I was seeing your work. Is that I just didn't care. I mean, because I, I knew that you killed my brother. That's all I wanted to do. And so, but eventually, you know, and he prayed and stuff like that. And uh, and now when he came in, we talked, he's like, yo, man, it's like a whole ton of bricks that's off my shoulders. You know, so that power of forgiveness was really strong. And I took it to my media friend, told them about the story of Fox News. And uh, the Fox News did a great story on it. And it, it went viral, got an Emmy Award for Best Media Documentary. And uh, he felt happy about that. He felt happy that he, you know, he did something, he did the right thing, even though he still struggled with people on the street saying, hey, you know, this guy, he's this guy, this guy, the street talk, peer pressure, but you know, grown man now. He got children of his own, you know, that are grown men, grown sons and daughters. You know, so his thing was more so that I, I know I did the right thing by forgiving. I mean, and even though he still struggles sometimes with being around me, and I understand that we have our talks, you know, I, I can't be around you sometimes. You know, I think about my brother, I mean, I think about this. And you got to be sympathetic to that. Yeah, but that I understand. You know, yeah, of so course. Kind of that relationship, but we go out, we talk about our stories, power of forgiveness, power of redemption, power of peace. And um, we share that message, you know, out there. And it just goes to show that you can change your story. I mean, he's changing his children's stories and his grandchildren and i mean changing a community story so that's i mean that whole thing is powerful that's incredible how did how did speaking on a tedx stage come about for you i mean poetry you you have a book you you that you've written you speak to middle school to prisons and then all of a sudden here you are on a ted stage right, how, right. how did that come about beautiful man i, I... Man, that was one, <laughs> one of my bucket list um, um, things I wanted to do. When I first heard about TED Talk about five years ago, 
And I was like, I want to get on and tell my story because I know, I mean, it, it impacts the world. This is the world stage, you know. So um, I put in uh, applications all over, like probably a few times, probably 10 times, never got a response. And um, I just stopped doing it. I started focusing more on my work and uh, trying to write that second book. But uh, I, I met with a, a brother, a friend of mine now, a close friend, like brother from another Caucasian guy named Tim Rhodes, who uh, runs an organization called One Life Fully Live. One Life Fully Live, they do a they're from California, Tim is from California, they do conferences out there, and they're trying to help people, you know, with expert speakers and stuff like that, help people you know, deal with uh, finances, uh, uh, their life struggles and stuff like that, and trying to help them. Finding find the right roadmap for themselves in their life. They like dream it, plan it, live it. How you dream it, how you plan it, how you live it. He was doing that all day with big conference with big speakers in California. So he came to Philly, uh, really Westchester at first, um, to bring this, bring that the conference here on the East Coast. And uh, I met another friend, my young lady, um, who invited me to meet with her father. Her father's a part of a group called Go Abundance, which Tim is also one of the founding fathers of that group, which is a millionaire group. It's like 250 millionaires from all over the country who get together and they brainstorm a how to, you know, create better lives for themselves, their families, their loved ones, and, you know, and business. You know, so I was at Vice's house meeting and Tim was there and the father introduced me to, he said he saw the, ten, he saw the um, Fox 29 News documentary he loved it. He loved the story. Uh, he told his friends about it. And he told Tim, like, this is Will. He got a great story of forgiveness, compile, forgiveness, things he's been through in life. Talked to him. So, man, Tim talked basically. And Tim was like, no, I want you to speak at the conference. So, I came and spoke at his conference. Then, from California, I spoke there at that conference. I met another speaker named Jim, Jim Gruber. Uh, another lady, she's from Philadelphia, too, in my hometown. It was a great, great speaker, uh, businesswoman, entrepreneur. Uh, and she spoke, and then she's like, you know, I got something for you guys. I want you to go out there and pitch, because we're trying to pitch Dare to Dream. And Dare to Dream is another project um, on the side of Go Abundance and One Life Fully Live. But Dare to Dream is more geared towards high school and middle school students to teach them how to dream, plan, and live their life once they leave high school, what they want to do, find their niche uh, in life early. Um, and um, she said, well, you should pitch that to uh, the public, um, what's it called? The publicity summit they have every year in New York. So um, she paid for us to go, basically. It's like, well, you can go and pay for you and Tim to come out there. I can do a pitch, elevator pitch about Dare to Dream and what it's about. And it was real funny how you put it together, you know, the hips and the sticks and the brothers from the hood joined together to save the world. So basically, we just told what we were doing with the conference and I was telling my story. And to um, all the different media um, outlets. And I can tell you, George, um, he was there. He was like, look, he said, I need you to do a TED Talk. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, I need to do a TED Talk, right, immediately. So I was like, when? He said, I only got a month. I'm sorry, but we need you. It was November, so he said, December. We need you in December. I was like, wow. He said, no, we get six months to prepare. But he said, can you do this right now? I was like, look, I'm up for the challenge. You know, I always want to do a TED Talk. So whatever I had to do, I'm going to get back to it. As soon as I leave from New York to go home. I was just right on it. He said, "Great." He said, "I really want you on here. I really want. I really need you on here. Your story is fantastic and great for a TED Talk." So I was like, "Okay." So I was excited about it, you know. And I was like, "Wow, I'm going to do a TED Talk." I told my friends about it, and uh, I normally don't write my speeches down. I just go off the top because I'm used to doing that. I'm more so, just assessing my my audience because I speak to all different audiences. So I never come with a tell it made speech. So. Um, 
they needed to, they needed to hear my speech. So I had to record it, send it in, they critique it, send it back to me, say we need this at this amount of time, and you know, and summarize it and everything else. So I was like, okay, I never critiqued them on this, but I'm gonna get this done because I really need to. And uh, I went to Wilmington TED Talk in Delaware, and everybody got a chance to rehearse except me. I didn't get a chance to rehearse. Oh. I was like, all right, so um, I speak about self-confidence. I speak about willing yourself to do things you need to do, who the person you have to be in order to achieve goals and stuff like that in life. So I had to become that person. That yeah. I'm, I'm the TED Talk guy. I'm going to kill this show. My my stuff talk is positive, like, like 100% positive. So I told myself, I know how my brain works. I know how my subconscious works. So I had to train my brain, trigger that, and all the things I talked about, what I want to talk about directly, and get it done, and get it done on time, and finish it out. You know, so I was the last speaker of the night. And um, at the end, I finished speaking, taking that jumpsuit off. You can watch it on YouTube. It's uh, Will Little on YouTube, TED Talk. Yeah. I put the jumpsuit on. So I, I got a little, I got a little um, creative with it, too. You know, I do poetry in motion. So poetry in motion, we do a lot of acts and skits and stuff like that. So I, got, I brought that to the stage with me, a little, a little bit of part of me. I did two poems in the, in the, um, in the talk, in the beginning and the end. And as I was doing a poem called Change, We Need Change, I didn't talk about pennies, nickels, quarters, dimes. I'm talking about changing hearts and changing minds. I started taking off the jumpsuit. And under the jumpsuit, I had a, a suit on. You know, so people could see the transformation happening right in front of their face. You know, and just telling my life and how I was, how I grew up, and you know, how I changed my life and where I'm at now today. I got a standing ovation. And uh, the, the um, director or the founder of the, um, the TED Talk, he was like, you know, this is, this, this is the highlight of the night. That's why I wanted you to last, you know, because I knew no one was going to be able to follow you. So that would be great. <laughs> All the speakers he heard, and he, he said that to me, I was like, wow. I said, it was really, really inspiring to hear that from him. And I'll, I'll link, I'll include the, a link to that uh, in our show notes. So if you're listening, uh, you got to go watch it because it is, I love the transformation from the prison jumpsuit to the three-piece suit. Uh, yeah, man, it was bravo. Well done. I've been to a couple of TEDx events, and that's got to be one of my favorites for sure is yours. Yeah, man, you're welcome. What's your favorite way to tell a story? I and mean, I can see the passion when you're talking about Ted, and that was a bucket list. But then you also, when you talk about your poetry, man, you light up. Um, but then when you talk about, uh, you know, interacting with kids, you, you light up. So what do you, can, you, can you pick a favorite way to tell your story? Well, I mean, like I said, I always go through, I always assess my crowd first and see who is there because I'm reading people as I come in. Mm-hmm. And what is, what is it that I can deliver to them to help them grow or transform in that moment? You know, so yeah. um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a moment maker. So I'm about making moments and, and you have to really be a student first before you can be a teacher. I mean, in every, every room I walk into, I'm always learning and absorbing the energy in the room, the vibration in the room, you know, so then that feeds me. You know, so when it feeds me, then whatever comes out, that's what that's what comes out. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I see those people's faces light up. Like right now, I'm doing classes on emotional intelligence and teaching emotional intelligence, teaching the universal laws, and, and basically breaking down the whole human system, how you can uh, reinvent yourself and how you can transform your life to become the best you. You know, and that's what my TED talk is called: How to Become the Best Version of Yourself. You know, so. Um, just doing that and just seeing people just become aware now of life. Like, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't have no knowledge about that. How you control your emotions, how your emotions work, how everything you do is based on emotion. 
uh, how you transform your brain, your subconscious, using your conscious state of mind, how you become programmed, uh, based on your environment, your culture, and, and you know, and things that they should just a lot of a wealth of information that is not known. I mean, how you get over pain, trauma, hurt, how people live in the past instead of living in the future, you know, how the stress creates sicknesses inside you, your body, how your thoughts can make you sick, how your thoughts can heal you as well. So mm-hmm. all this information that, you know, is definitely needed in our community to heal communities and bring back hope in the community. So I'm trying to push this emotional intelligence. Well, really many emotional intelligence, but how the human system works. I want to push that my program on how the human system works, how you can create your best life. Yeah, that's incredible, man. Powerful. How do, well, do you think that I don't, I don't even know? I don't know how to ask this necessarily, but I'm going to try and muddle through it because it's it's really been on my heart for a long time in, in these interviews and stuff. How do you think story? can change the world for us, whether it's, you know, things like, like bad neighborhoods, whether it's things like racism, whether it's things like just not connecting with people. I mean, can story really save us? Do you think? Yeah. Stories. Yeah. People are more engaged with stories, you know, because they, they, they can see a vision. It's like they visualize in their mind, like a movie. You're watching a movie in your own mind. So when you're telling a story, like people always look for themselves in that story. And that's how you connect. If a person can't find itself in your story, then it, 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 they drift off somewhere. I mean, so the thing is making a story relatable. I mean, and life experience is relatable to everybody because we all have life, you know? Yeah. And even though I may have not lost a child, I'm saying if I hear a person talk about losing a child or lost some money or how they became rich and wealthy, I want to hear a story because it's something I want to do. You know, uh, I want to hear a story of, uh, of um, redemption. You know, I want to hear that story of how you overcame. I want to hear that story because this, this, this has, I might encounter that experience somehow. And I want to know what to do once I encounter that. So stories, storytelling is, is really ancient. It's always one of the probably one of the best forms of, of, um, of um, uh, connecting with people, you know? No. Like even with poetry, poetry is one of the oldest forms of educating and Entertainment, poetry, one of the oldest form of entertainment. You know, we educate and entertain at the same time. You know, that's why poetry will always exist. Um, so, even the poetry is stories and poetry. I mean, like my stories and poetry. I mean, and that people can connect to and relate to because they're real life stories. You know, and mm-hmm. they can see themselves in your story, then that's how they connect. That. That's how you add value to their life. And I think that's where we can really stop dehumanizing groups and humanize humans, humanize each other on a more intimate level and get rid of those things like racism and violence and stuff. So it's, it's nice to hear that, you know, from somebody else who has been out there in the world so much and, and sees that because that's kind of how I see it. And it's just, it can be very powerful. So it's very we interesting. Are, we, are, we are connected. Like we, we are connected. Like I understand, like I, I studied the universal laws. Like everyone is connected to the same energy source. You know, so it ain't about color and none of that stuff because you have the same energy. So we had the same emotions, we had the same feeling, we had the same thought process, training your brain. I think it's different, but that's our experience in life and what we've been taught from our environment, from our culture, from our family members. You know, other than that, it's more so that we, we still have that, that that human connection. You know, we put labels on things. This is what society did. We put labels on things to separate each other and divide. 
I mean, but realistically, when you understand yourself, you at one with yourself, you know that you're connected to everything around you, every part of it. So. Amen to that. That's, I, I love that. So if, if somebody told you, Will, that you could no more, no longer tell stories, what do you think your last story would be before you were done telling stories? Well, my last story would be um, the story of unity. I unify us as one, as one race, you know, so, human race. I like that. That'd be a powerful one. Very good, man. Listen, I appreciate you taking the time tonight. Um, I know you're a busy guy and uh, you're telling your story everywhere. So uh, thanks for being a part of the Storytellers Network. Uh, I'm going to link to some stuff in the show notes, but is there a, a central place people can find you and connect with you that's easiest? Well, I have a new page um, on my um, on my Facebook page. You can connect with me there under Will Little, or you can find my page, um, Transform Your Life with Will Little. That's my fan page. All right. Go to that fan page and, and connect me on there. If you can't connect with me on connect me on there, just go to Will Little Facebook page and I'll connect you from that page right there. Perfect, man. My website too. You can check that out. www.willbeatthevictorlittle.com All right, man. We'll link to all that in the show notes, brother. Hey, man, I appreciate your time once again, my friend. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Appreciate that. And once again, thank you so much to my guest, Will Latif Little. Uh, what a great storyteller and what an amazing story. Now, you can connect with Will at all the links down in the show notes. And if you enjoyed the episode, please share it with someone, post it to your social media, text somebody or stop them on the street and tell them, hey, I got this great show you need to know about. If you heard of a podcast, you got to check this out. And if you want to share your story with me, go to thestorytellersnetwork.com, hit contact Dan on the contact page, send me an email and let me know what you love or don't love uh, about the show. Until next time, here's to telling our stories, having stories to tell. Cheers.